Solidarity, if you are one of the half million workers striking today against real terms pay cuts after a decade of wage stagnation, this show is all about you. Or at least the first half of it is. I will be joined throughout the show by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good. I had a really good day um, at the NEU demo. So the LSE, UCU, we all went down, did the march. And yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a great day, a great, a wonderful day to strike. I've been in the studio. I didn't uh, make it to a picket, but my Instagram stories is full of people seeming in very high spirits. Um, the numbers looked massive. Um, so yeah, it looks like it's it's been a, a real success. We're going to be talking about that later in the show. We have some some things which are less successful, including Matt Hancock's interview with Good Morning Britain. Up to half a million workers are striking across the country in the biggest day of industrial action in a decade. On striker workers from across the public sector who are fighting for better pay, decent conditions and greater funding for essential services. They include teachers from the NEU across England and Wales who turned out in huge numbers in rallies and on picket lines across the country. 23,000 schools in England and Wales were affected. Meanwhile, rolling strikes by the Educational Institute of Scotland are continuing into their third week of walkouts. There are also 70,000 university workers from 150 UK universities out on strike today, all members of the University and Colleges Union. Also, 100,000 civil servants represented by the Public and Commercial Services Union took industrial action. They include government officials, museum workers and DVLA employees. Then there are train drivers represented by ASLEF and the RMT, jointly bringing most trains across England to a halt. The strikes are affecting our borders too, with around 2,000 border force workers walking out in Kent and northern France, and 2,000 London bus workers are striking in the capital. As you can see, it's a huge day of coordinated strike action, and as well as fighting for pay and conditions and for proper funding for public services, it's also about the government's proposed anti-strike laws. The TUC had billed today as a national day of action to protest the minimum service levels bill, which has already passed through the Commons and is now being scrutinised in the House of Lords. If it becomes law, government ministers would have the power to force striking workers to maintain a minimum service in some sectors. If workers refuse to comply, they could face the sack. In London this morning, Workers from all across the public sector marched from the BBC to Parliament Square. My colleague Stephen Methven spoke to some of those in attendance. Obviously dead against it. You know, this has been part of uh, an erosion of labour rights that started with the Conservative government in the 80s, was, was continued by the new Labour government and has been picked up and exacerbated by this cu current Conservative Party government. The way that we stop it is we come out on the streets, think about the counterfactual. Think about if the government enacted this bill and we did nothing. They need to know that we're not going to stand for this. And we can, we, you know, we, we fought against, you know, the poll tax. We fought against, you know, um, the uh, prolonging of indefinite detention under Blair. We, we've done it so many times. The, the government are not going to repeal these laws off their own will of volition. It requires us coming out onto the streets, fighting and pushing back against them. And I have every confidence that we can do that. That was Tanzel Chowdhury, a striking lecturer, who's actually been on this show before. Alice Dunn is a secondary school teacher. Here she explains what brought her out on strike. I think for me, actually, it was talking to some of my year 13s. Um, my year 13s, I mean, you expect, you, you know that they appreciate you to an extent, but you don't really know how much they really appreciate you. And actually it was talking to them about the strikes and them saying, we've noticed that teachers are overworked. Like We know it gets to the end of a term and you're tired and you know, you're doing so much. And so they were really supportive of it. I think hearing them say that and knowing that they, that the students notice how much pressure we're under, that made me want to do it. Because I think if they can see how pressured we are and if they're feeling the repercussions of that, that's grossly unfair. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have a clue how stressed we are. They shouldn't know. We should be able to hide that. But the fact that we're so overworked we can't, I think is testament to the fact that it's, not, it's time now to strike and do something more about it. As we've discussed before on this show, teachers have suffered a decade of real terms pay cuts. Pay for classroom teachers has fallen by 13% since 2010. The falls were slightly lower for teachers in leadership positions. And that long-term story of pay cuts was put to the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, this morning. In the meantime, their pay in real terms is much lower over the last decade, so that despite those offers, which 
are well below inflation in the large majority of cases, it doesn't come anywhere near to making up for those lost years of, of underpayment, they would say. That's why we need to get inflation down. Inflation is the problem here. That's why we need to halve inflation. It makes no sense for us as a government to bake in inflation for much longer for everybody listening because we give inflation-busting pay rises. So when inflation was at historic lows in the 2010s, teachers' pay fell. Now, when inflation is at historic highs, teachers' pay also has to fall. So remind me again, why should teachers prioritise controlling inflation? Of course, as we've spoken about before, Keegan also ignores the fact that hiking public sector pay should have little effect on inflation. We just need to tax the rich to pay for it. And in case you were in any doubt if Keegan is part of the wealthy, she gave all of her interviews this morning wearing a £10,000 Rolex watch. Earlier today, I spoke to Daniel Kevity, a national officer at the National Education Union. I began by asking him about his union's demands. Well, primarily, we're after a fully funded pay award that is inflation matching or above. So far, uh, we have received a pay award of 5%, a 5% pay award this year. That's below inflation, so it's a real terms pay cut. Uh, following a decade of pay cuts. But the real important thing as well is that the 5% pay award that we've been given this year is not funded by government. So head teachers and school leaders need to find that 5% out of existing school budgets. And of course, school budgets have been uh, stretched for the past decade. You know, we are spending less per pupil than we did in 2010. So for schools to try and find that money is a very difficult a difficult prospect, uh, particularly in a in the in the midst of a, a gas and energy pro- pro- crisis and cost of living crisis, which schools are not immune from. And in terms of where the money comes from, I mean, are you allowed to negotiate? Union laws are quite restrictive. I think you're only allowed to sort of strike when it's your own pay or your own conditions. You're allowed to say we're going to remain on strike until you fund schools more because we don't want to be taking this budget from other parts of the the school outlay. So our primary demand is pay. You're absolutely right. You know, there is very restricted trade union legislation. But in addition to that, we're demanding that that pay award should be should be funded. Um, it's quite an untenable situation, to be honest, Michael. Um, you know, a 5% pay award that's not funded in the context of school funding that's already been eroded will just lead to redundancies, to restructures within school. And ultimately, it will lead to larger class sizes uh, because we will have fewer teachers and fewer support staff. And we already have the biggest class sizes in Europe. So, yeah, we are we are raising the demand for an above inflation pay award. But we are very clear that that funding must also come with it. With lots of these strikes that we're seeing, I know this has been a big issue with the, the nurses as well. There's been a lot of debate over whether this will be a pay award for this year or for the next financial year. Can you kind of explain that? Because I think what the Tories often say is they say, well, of course, we're not going to negotiate the year, which is almost over. Um, so why are unions trying to negotiate the current pay year instead of the next one? This is the government's narrative that, you know, uh, we're not going to get back to around the table to discuss uh, last year's pay award. And what they're also saying is, you know, the, the pay awards are awarded by independent bodies. Well, we completely reject that. The school teachers pay review body that awarded the 5% below inflation pay cut that isn't funded is not an independent body. It's not free from government. And actually, what we really want is direct bargaining with the Secretary of State education. At the moment, they're trying to very much avoid that and not come to the table with a meaningful offer. But if that, if they continue to that to hold that position, then unfortunately, strikes will continue. I mean, it was a fantastic demonstration of the, the profession's deep feeling today. We had tens of thousands of teachers in rallies just in the capital city alone. In Newcastle, where I live, there were 3,000 teachers out uh, on the rallies, pickets up and down the country. It's a mistake for the government to, to, to maintain this position. History will not, they're not on the right side of history on this one, Michael. And we've been able to show our audience, you know, declining teachers' pay, as you say, in the form of graphs and charts. It's somewhat harder to, to get across statistically um, teachers' general morale. So could you talk about that? You know, not so much on strike today, but in, in schools in, in general, how is teaching in the UK right now? It's really important to remember that actually this is also a deeper expression of anger amongst the profession. You know, we talk about the anti-union legislation to get, you know, a union of 450,000 members past a 50% threshold is a difficult task. 
it's a difficult task for any trade union, but let let alone one so large. But we there is a deep expression of anger that's been expressed, not just around pay and funding, but workloads are always also rocketing and at excessive levels. Family life is very difficult for your average teacher or support staff member. We're angry at a ruthless inspectorate in terms of Ofsted that drive a absolutely absurd accountability regime that leads to a narrowing curriculum to, to huge workload pressures that start with head teachers and trickle down throughout the school. But of course, actually, we're also angry around things around curriculum, the lack of professional control. But fundamentally as well, there is a huge uh, amount of anger being expressed at the record levels of child poverty that we're seeing in our classrooms. The government likes to talk about raising school standards and improving educational attainment for, for young people. Never in our history have we seen rising educational standards whilst there's also been rising levels of child poverty. So there is a huge amount of demoralisation amongst the profession. And I think that was up until today. And now that feels like we are starting to push back, push back against a government that doesn't really value our profession, doesn't value educators or education and fundamentally doesn't value our, our children. And let's talk about the students. Um, I think at the moment, you've planned seven days of strike action. You have a mandate to do six months of strike action. So, you know, potentially that could be a lot of education missed. What is your approach to that? I mean, obviously, I think everyone recognizes it's a difficult situation. But what is your approach to that? And I suppose to minimizing the harm done to, to kids? So at the moment, we have four days of action planned. So we have one day uh, today. Then there's going to be some regional strikes. So my region will be going out on strike next on the 28th of February. And then there will be two days of consecutive national strikes in March. Now, it's up to the government to avert this. It's on them to to start talking, putting forward reasonable offers. But to parents out there, I would say, you know, this, that I'm a parent. I'm a parent myself. My son lost his day of school today as well, like many parents, uh, like many children around the country. But we are really fighting at the moment for the very heart of education. This government wants our profession to be passive so that they can continue a program of pay cuts, funding erosion and privatisation. And today the profession said no. Now, the next round of strikes isn't for weeks away. And so there's, you know, they've had enough time. You know, I went to the school teachers review body last summer and said, if you don't give us an inflation plus uh, fully funded pay award, we'll be balloting and going down a strike. They didn't believe us. The government didn't believe us. And, uh, you know, they've had a couple of weeks to negotiate that those have failed. They've now got a further three weeks to negotiate before our next round of strikes. It's very much on the government at the moment. And as I say, broadly, the public are hugely supportive. And I was on picket lines where we were having donuts brought, coffees brought, honks going by because parents know the experience of, of schools at the moment. There's not enough money. We can't even afford blue sticks and the basic resources. I've got members in a school 10 minutes away from me complaining because their head is struggling to put the heating on. Education's in crisis and our children deserve better. And that's why every teacher is out on strike at, at the moment in the NEU. And, uh, you know, we are not a striking profession. So, you know, it's, it's time the government listened to that. Next story. Craig McKinlay is a Tory MP and a former leader of the right-wing UK Independence Party. He appeared on the BBC's Politics Live to give this pretty extreme take on the public sector strikes. Are the strikes justified and should the pay demands be made? I don't think strikes are ever justified. Um, I'm thinking about the whole of London, the whole of South East, the whole of the country tomorrow, people trying to get to work to do what they want to do, to you know, to earn money and, and, and pay for their family, and mm. they will be stopped from doing so tomorrow. He doesn't think strikes are ever justified. No strike has ever been justified. Pretty extreme. Luckily, Navarra Media's own Dahlia Gabriel was there to turn absolute nonsense into pure fire. I say thank God for strikes because our public services are on their knees after 10 years yeah. of austerity. Mm. Anyone who's tried to get an ambulance, everyone who's, anyone who's got a kid in school knows that we are in a dire crisis. And, and this government doesn't believe in a public sector, doesn't believe in a thriving public sector. So mm. thank God workers on the ground who know what needs to happen have that tool that they can use to leverage power to get the changes that we need. Right. As a member of the public who uses the public sector, 
thank God for strikes. I wish well, hang on. I just more on the NHS than's ever been spent in its history. In that is a deceptive statistic. Mm. The growth in funding in the NHS has, has been, been has massively declined, and that is true. Craig McKinlay, I've never heard of him before. They don't put forward their best, do they? No, they really aren't sending their best. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting kind of segment, I think, for so many different reasons. I mean, first of all, we had obviously like the really classic line that we hear from conservatives all the time, which is this pitting the public, quote unquote, against striking workers. Of course, you know, as the public, you know, the public is the striking workers and the striking workers are the public. And ordinary members of the public have far more in common with those striking workers than they do with Craig McKinley. You know, unless you don't have any working class friends, either you or someone you know is going to probably be on strike today. And even like earlier on in the segment, there was this hilarious line where he was like, you know, oh, so many of us last Christmas, you know, I don't know about you, but me and my loved ones, we didn't even bother to send out Christmas cards because of the postal strike. And I was just like, literally like the tiniest little violin for this like deeply pathetic argument. Uh, but the other thing I saw in that segment in the kind of extended version of it was this kind of divide and rule thing where, you know, there was this idea of, oh, okay, you know, it's fine when nurses go on strike. Yes, we, we support the nurses, but we don't support these workers or we don't support university lecturers. We don't support teachers. We don't support rail workers. And, you know, it's because their polling has told them that, you know, nurses are popular. And so they feel like they can sort of divide and conquer it, which is actually a very Thatcherite approach, when obviously, the public is actually broadly in favour of these strikes, despite all of the effort that has been put into th these kind of diversionary tactics. But for me, what was actually the most disappointing thing to see in that segment was the Labour response. You know, we had the Labour MP on that panel, Kim Leadbeater, and Joe Coburn basically had to drag it out of her for her to say that it was okay for backbench MPs to appear on picket lines. And the reason that she probably feels like that is because her boss, Keir Starmer, has been sacking MPs for appearing on picket lines. He sacked Sam Tarry from his uh, shadow cabinet for appearing on an RMT picket line. You know, with the exception of a very few Labour MPs, you know, Dawn Butler was there at the rally today. We saw Zara Sultana at the rally. Jeremy Corbyn was on Politics Live yesterday talking about the strikes, although obviously he's not a Labour MP anymore. But we've not really seen any Labour Party presence when it comes to, you know, the largest like day of common strike of of cross-sectoral strikes in decades. When you look at, you know, Labour Party social media, there's nothing. They haven't even tweeted anything today um, about anything. You know, the, the last thing that is on their, their Twitter account is a retweet of Yvette Cooper talking about, you know, cracking down on antisocial behavior and talking about increasing policing to stop antisocial behavior, which sounds suspiciously like, you know, the kind of public order bill, which is obviously threatened, be, going to be threatened to be used against, against strikes. So for me, what's been so, you know, I expect a conservative MP to speak like that. I, I expect a conservative MP to be against strike action. You know, speak your truth, like that is who you are. Let me see who you actually are. What I find incredibly shameful is the complete absence of especially the higher echelons of the Labour Party on a day that is so important for Labour in this country. Uh, I think it's going to be incredibly damaging um, for them next, next election. And I think that it's really sad that Keir Starmer thinks he's simply too good to stand next to workers, next to working class people on the picket lines. Maybe he's worried he might scuff up his lapels by, you know, standing too near the riffraff. But, you know, I think that maybe if he did spend a little bit of time on the picket lines, he could learn a little bit about what it means to fight in Tory Britain. I can kind of see why, if you want to be prime minister, you would just say, look, we're not going to we're not going to get involved. This is between the trade unions and the government. But they have made it pretty clear that it's the government's fault that they're happening. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. if I was a Labour strategist at this point, with the strategy that they've got, I probably wouldn't be telling Keir Starmer to speak to a TUC demo. Well, I think that it shows that he is part of that he, you know, feels the injury that we as a public are feeling on the on the brunt end of 10 years of Tory austerity. And also because this is how we're actually going to win. Like 
as I said in that clip, you know, the Conservative Party does not believe in a public sector. You're not going to persuade Conservative MPs in the Houses of Parliament, in the House of Commons to fund the NHS. They don't believe in the concept of a thriving public sector. And so the way that we're actually going to win is by this kind of industrial action. And I don't see the contradiction or the conflict in an organization that's called the Labour Party being present in labor movements in the country. You know, this is, I don't see, you know, these labor movements, they're not just campaign groups. These are democratic institutions that are a key part of our of our political fabric. And I don't see the the tension because, you know, I mean, obviously these are industrial disputes. They are disputes between employers and, and workers, but they're also much bigger than that. They're also an expression of the public trying to, to assert their voice and assert their power after 10 years of Tory austerity. I really don't see the contradiction between the Labour Party. I don't think they lose anything really by, by showing solidarity in quite tangible terms to strikes. And even if Keir Starmer himself is not going to go onto a picket line, the fact that he's like sacking senior members of sen- and cabinet, shadow cabinet ministers for appearing on RMT picket lines kind of, to me, is quite a strong indication of, you know, that he sees the workers' movement as a liability rather than the place where he should be getting his power. It is his job to express opinions about sort of like pay, and I don't think he's done that enough. Uh, My issue with him is he hasn't sort of said, I'm going to tax the rich to pay these people properly. I mean, that's what I want to hear from Mm. someone who wants to be prime minister. I'm kind of less interested as to whether or not he speaks at a TUC demo or whether or not he turns up to a picket line. I want to hear the policy which is going to resolve this. And I suppose my critique of him would be that he hasn't done that. He hasn't said we're going to tax the rich so that we can give Mm. these people the, the pay rise they want. He's actually, he hasn't just sat on the fence about whether he backs the strike. He's also sat on the fence about whether these people deserve a pay rise. So I, would, I, I think my mm. issue is more with the policy than whether or not he's turned up. They both tell us information about the broader picture, right? You know, the fact that the Labour Party couldn't even bring themselves to tweet something in acknowledgement that, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers are going on strike today. Like, to me, that's a statement. You know, that's a statement of, again, this, and it's a broader part of Keir Starmer's approach, which is that, the people who actually voted him in, the people who give him his authority, you know, the trade union movement, he sees them as liabilities. He sees them as people he wants to distance himself from. And for me, it's like, if you're going to get to power by lying to people and essentially being two-faced and then like turning your back on the people that put you in power, why should the public trust you in a general election? Let's go straight on to our next story. What's the best way to support a spouse striking for better pay? Well, at one extreme, you could join them on a picket line. More common is probably just a few words of support. But one husband of a striking teacher had a different idea. He called in to speak to Nick Ferrari on LBC. Chris in Norwich. Chris, your wife's a teacher, is that right? Good morning. She is, mate. Yes, good morning. Um, It's causing a massive debate in our household. Uh, (laughs) I can be quite opinionated in my point of view as much as she can. Um, so she waited until Friday to tell me that she was striking, <laughs> purely because she didn't want me to argue with her. Right. Um, she's asked me to get on board with her point of view. So I've taken what she said. Mm. Now, she said it's for the kids mm. so that they can have better school supplies and everything else. Everything I've, I've then so gone away, read about it, listened about it to LBC, mm. looked online. And everything points to teachers wanting more wages. Mm-hmm. So I've gone back to her and she said, well, they're taking the 5% pay rise out of the school budget. As I've informed her, a business will run and take wages out of a budget that well, they have set for the year. Yeah. Yes. Um, and of course, it's then going to affect the kids because they then can't afford some of the supplies they need. So realistically, I've said to her, if you were arguing for more funding for the school kids, I would probably be more on board with it. She's on 40 grand a year, right, near enough, right, right. which is more than I'm on. I'm a lorry driver. Right. Um, so she's the breadwinner, fair enough, not a problem. Um, but she has a lot of holiday throughout the year, which, again, that's the career. <laughs> oh, my God, teachers are going to be really... Oh, you're yeah. a brave that's man because when you say yeah. that, they go bloody nuts at me, I tell you. But go ahead, you're married to one, go on. <laughs> <laughs> I live on the edge. <laughs> you do, you do. You can get in your but, truck yeah. and drive off to Aberdeen for a few days. <laughs> As I've told her, though, 
she works from sort of half five and she normally gets home at half eight and then she normally gets home about six. So she's probably leaving off about half five. Yeah. Um, and she's paid from half eight till half three. So I've, as I said to her, those two hours, if you add that up, somebody who works in a shop as a manager or whatever and gets 40 grand, for example, um, and the amount of holidays she has and the amount of extra hours she does, it probably works out similar to an average person who goes out and earns 40 grand a year. Yes. In, a, in some yeah. business and whatnot. But it's just crazy, really. <laughs> I'm going to show you my favorite reply to that video. It's from Hugh Lemmy. He's actually a great author um, with a podcast called Bad Gays. But I, I just want to show you his reply here. He's putting himself in the shoes um, of the caller. He's saying, I hear what you're saying from your actual life experience working as a teacher, love, but I've gone away and listened to LBC, and here is why I won't be supporting you, my lazy, overpaid wife, in this difficult decision. <laughs> I think it's going to be obvious to our audience why what that guy said was completely bullshit, but it is worth spelling it out. And I think it is also worth spelling out that he, he clearly hasn't done that much research. So for one, he sort of says, I'd have more respect for them, I'd have more sympathy for them if they actually were striking for the students instead of striking for their own pay. Now, what a, a little bit of research would have done is taught him that that would be illegal. So you're only allowed to go on strike in this country for your own working conditions and your own pay. You, you can't say, oh, I'm going to go on strike for the benefit of my students explicitly. You know, obviously they're, they're saying that. They're saying this is about our pay, but it's also about our students. But you can't formally go on strike for anything other than your own conditions. That, that That's part of British law. So then whenever you hear people especially right-wing talking points, they're often saying, this isn't this isn't about the public service, this is about their pay and their pensions. If they were striking for someone else, I'd have some respect. No, it's illegal to do that. Also, I think the reason he clearly hasn't done much research, it's funny he talks about listening to LBC as part of his research, is that he, he thinks teachers don't work exceptionally long hours. Now, the government's own statistics show that teachers work, I think, the longest hours of, of any sector, actually, at the moment. They work 55 hours a week, 55 to 60 hours a week. They're obviously not contracted to work that much. So that's a lot of time they are working for free. And the reason they have to work those long hours is because in their contracted time, in the, in the time where they, are, you know, where they have to be at school, for four hours a day, teachers in this country are standing in front of 30 children. Now, when I was working in a, in a school before I was a journalist in South London, one of the big complaints of the teachers, um, and especially teachers who had come from other countries, there's someone in my department from Canada, I think, and she was saying the exceptional thing about the British education system is how little time you have outside of the classroom. And this makes loads of sense, right? You can imagine if you're teaching a class, you want to have quite a bit of time to think about that lesson beforehand. You want to have quite a bit of time to mark the work afterwards. And also you want to have a rest because it's extremely exhausting standing in front of 30 kids where you have to be on all the time. Because if you, you know, relax for a moment, then everything can go out of control. Schools are actually like that, right? I've worked in one. So this is why I know how stressful it is. I didn't become a teacher because I saw how stressful it is. So the idea that they don't work long hours is ridiculous. They have to work long hours because the hours they're contracted is always in front of kids and they have to do a lot of preparing. They have to do a lot of marking. And I think it's quite intentional that, you know, they can pose that as being voluntary. Oh, no, they don't actually have to work 55 hours or 60 hours a week. If they just worked a bit quicker, maybe they'd be able to have a 40-hour week like everyone else. No, these are average times. And these are smart, intelligent people, right? These are not lazy people. These are really hardworking people who cannot fit their contractual obligations into a normal working week, right? So they work incredibly hard. It's a knackering job. And I think what you're also hearing when it comes to pay, because yes, teachers you know, aren't below medium wage, but what you have to do is compare them to their peers, right? Compare them to people with similar qualifications. So what you're hearing, especially with maths teachers and science teachers, where you've got this huge shortage in this country is because if you're a maths grad and you're going to teaching, you start on 30K, you, you end up on 40K after a few years, but then you see your other math graduates of, of maths friends, they've gone to work in the city, they've gone to work in tech, they've gone to work in advertising, whatever, they're getting twice that. So if you want talented people in schools, if you want maths graduates and physics graduates in schools, you've got to pay them well. Then if you want them to be happy and if you want them to be effective teachers, you need to give them more time to prepare, more time to rest, more time to plan. They should not be teaching kids four hours a day for five days a week because it's, it's exhausting. Anyone who thinks it's, it's easy doesn't know teaching, which does kind of make me think, maybe that guy doesn't have a teacher wife. Let's go on to our next story.
As we discussed on Monday's show, the so-called conflict between Israel and Palestine is back in the news. That's principally because of an attack that killed seven Israelis in an illegal settlement last Friday. The deaths of Palestinians, of course, don't usually generate many headlines in and of themselves. On LBC this week, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hassam Zomlot, expertly exposed that hypocrisy. It's telling that we haven't met for a year now. It is really rather telling that we only meet when there are Israeli casualties, always. Um, it tells you all you need to know that uh, some consider Palestinian lives to be less important, different blood. Last year was absolutely awful. 230 Palestinians, mostly civilians, children, women, teachers, taxi drivers, were shot by the Israeli army. This month alone, 35. And uh, the raid engineering that was not mentioned in the introduction is what really got the situation into a new level uh, of, of, of confrontations. But you would accept that uh, all uh, of these are sort of retaliations from one side you or the other? You said something very interesting. You said we need to discuss this in a cool manner. Let's do that. Let's unpack this. You said the two sides always blame each other as if we have discussed this long ago. Well, this is part of the problem. The problem is the two-sidedism. The problem is this false parallels between an occupied and an occupier, a colonized and a colonizer, a besieged and a besieger. In no way we can claim or even begin to discuss when we think that there are two sides. This whole thing is about an aggression on the top of an aggression on the top of another aggression that has lasted for 100 years. 55 years of military occupation, and that is the biggest aggression of all, because that robs you of your national collective rights, denies you your basic rights, controls every aspect of who you are, where you live, where you work, and decides to kill you at will at any point in time, raid your refugee camp. That is another aggression which happened some 75 years ago, the Nakba, the wholesale ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Then you go to the refugee camps, wreak havoc at will in the middle of the night under the pretext that you have information. You kill nine or ten in Janine refugee camp, and then you send the whole thing into a new level of confrontation. Now, I think that was such an important intervention there. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, I, I don't think Ian Dale seriously thought that what he was doing was trying to minimize the lives of, of Palestinians. I think he probably does look at the, as I say, so-called conflict. You'll, you'll see why I'm saying that in a moment. But the so-called conflict between Israel and Palestine, I think he probably does see it as a conflict between two sides. You've got the Palestinians who kill some Israelis and the Israelis retaliate by killing some Palestinians and the Palestinians retaliate by killing some Israelis. Seeing it like that, there's just this cycle of violence. Someone needs to break the cycle of violence so everyone can come together. Now, what that ignores is that, especially the violence we've been seeing over the past few weeks, we need to say where that's been happening, right? That's all been happening on occupied land, land which is internationally recognized as being under military occupation. Now, sometimes you'll speak to people who are very anti-Zionist and they'll say all of Israel is occupied. I'm going to remain sort of on the fence on that one. Everyone agrees that East Jerusalem is under military occupation. That's international law. That's the UN. Basically, Everyone recognizes that, right? And if you abstract from the fact that all of these deaths are happening in occupied territory, then of course it just seems like, oh, one side killed one side, then the other side killed that side, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the way to make this really clear why this is wrong is if you look at Ukraine, right? So if someone said to you, oh yeah, the Russians have killed some Ukrainians, but last week some Ukrainians killed some Russians, the week before some Russians killed some Ukrainians, there's a cycle of violence going on in Ukraine at the moment. And what does that ignore? The fact that the Russians invaded Ukraine and all of those deaths are happening in occupied Ukraine, right? So, so the context of this violence is that one state is occupying another state. And that's the same in, in East Jerusalem. It's the same in the West Bank, it's the same in Gaza. One state is occupying another state. So you can't just say there are clashes. There is a conflict here. There is an occupation. And when one country occupies another country, what happens? Yeah, you get really brutal, horrible violence. That's what happens when you occupy a country or like Russia when you invade a country, right? So, so if you abstract from that, you are just not being honest about what the real story is. And again, to go back to Ukraine and Russia, if you were to have someone saying, oh yeah, the Russians killed some Ukrainians, but some Ukrainians killed some Russians. If they didn't mention the crucial context that Russia invaded Ukraine, what would they be called? Rightly, you know, a Putin stooge, a Putin apologist, because that's obviously a misleading description of the situation. But when it comes to people dying, people getting killed, people getting violently killed 
in East Jerusalem, in occupied Palestine, doesn't even get mentioned, right? Oh, it's just, oh, it's, it's, it's ancient hatreds between two people. No, it's one state occupying another people. So, I mean, I don't know if Ian Dale's going to learn, but it was, it was very well put by the Palestinian ambassador. Um, I'm quite annoyed about this today because Keir Starmer has proved just how cowardly he is when it comes to Israel. Now, this is a tweet from a journalist at the I newspaper. Keir Starmer's spokesman says Labour MP Kim Johnson's description of Israel as an apartheid state with a fascist government were unacceptable and said the chief whip will be speaking to her about the comments. Now, the comments referred to there were made by Kim Johnson at Prime Minister's questions, and they were, in fact, pretty reasonable, right? A year ago, Amnesty International declared that Israel practiced apartheid against Palestinians. Just a few months later, Human Rights Watch did the same. That was after investigating the extent of the state's racist crimes against Palestinians. A human rights group from Palestine has, has done the same, Bet Salem. So it seems pretty weird to call that unacceptable. What about calling the Israeli government fascist, though? Well, just like the apartheid claim, there is plenty of evidence to back Kim Johnson up. Take Itamar Ben-Gavir. He's Israel's minister of national security and leader of the political party Jewish Power. He entered government after Benjamin Netanyahu invited his party to join his coalition. That's despite Itamar having called for the expulsion of all Arabs from Israel and despite him having faced dozens of charges of hate speech against Arabs. For good measure, Ben Gavir used to hang the portrait of a man who massacred 29 Palestinians in Hebron in his living room. That all sounds a little bit fascist to me, which is why once leading figures in Israel are now using the term. Ehud Barak is a former prime minister of Israel. He recently warned that Netanyahu's government showed signs of fascism. He said Netanyahu has joined forces with racist maniacs to bring down democracy. And Barak is not the only one. The word fascist has even been used by members of Netanyahu's government themselves. Bezalel Smotrich is leader of the far-right religious Zionism party and Israel's current finance minister. A recording was recently released of him bragging that his voters don't care if he's a homophobe or, yes, a fascist. Yet despite this wealth of evidence, Kim Johnson still delivered this apology to the House of Commons. Mr. Deputy Speaker, I would like to apologise unreservedly for the intemperate language that I used during PMQs. I was wrong to use the term fascist in relation to the Israeli government and understand why this was particularly insensitive given the history of the State of Israel. And while there are far-right elements in the government, I recognise that the use of the term in this context was wrong. I would also like to apologise for the use of the term apartheid state. While I was quoting accurately Amnesty's description, I recognise this is insensitive and I'd like to withdraw it. While I was quoting Amnesty International's opinion accurately, it was insensitive and I would like to withdraw it. Have you ever heard a more stupid phrase uttered in the House of Commons? I mean, there have been lots of stupid phrases, phrases uttered in the House of Commons. But it's, it's so a human rights organisation have said that a government is committing apartheid. But to say that in the House of Commons is insensitive in case you offend someone, right? A state is committing apartheid. It's been recognized by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, by Betzalem, which is a leading Israeli human rights organization. But to admit that in parliament, you know, your job is as a representative. This is not a, you know, it, you can imagine, oh, you're around a dinner table, right? You're around a dinner table with some family members who are really keen on Israel. Now, maybe talking about Israeli apartheid would be a bit insensitive because you'd cause a row. Maybe it'd upset your grandma or whoever's sitting around the table, right? I can see that. This is not a dinner party. This is parliament. This is parliament where you're supposed to have MPs saying true things, talking about outrages that are going on in this country or in the world. But this one, you stand up and you say, there's a human rights organization which has said this government is doing this appalling thing. Oh, you can't say that. It's a little bit insensitive. And we're in such a topsy-turvy world that it's seen as normal for someone to say, yes, this is true. Yes, this was accurate, but it was insensitive, so I withdraw it. You should have lobby journalists asking questions. This seems a bit weird, doesn't it? That this MP has had to apologize for something, even though it was true. Isn't this a bit weird? Why, why did that have to happen? That's not what lobby journalists do. What lobby journalists do is go, ha, 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 yeah, Keir Starmer showed he's a real leader. He's put the left back in their place. He's told someone that because they were standing up for a brutalized people, they have to literally deny the truth in public and basically humiliate themselves just to prove that they are completely subservient to the leader of the Labour Party, who seems to be completely unwilling to upset anyone in favour of Israel, right? Or the policies of Israel. 
it blows my mind. And on this show, you know, you often see when I feel like I am softer on Keir Starmer than some people on the left or, you know, some people on the show, we have disagreements. That's always very legitimate is when I feel like he has stayed out of something that other people want him to get involved in. So when it comes to going on a picket line, he sees that there's this big conflict between trade unions and the government. Now, I think it's sort of fair enough to say, look, this big conflict is going on. Doesn't really benefit me or my party to get involved. Doesn't really benefit the trade unionists, to be honest, if I get that involved. So I'm going to stay out of this. Now, if he wants to stay out of it, fine. But what I hate about this is he's not staying out of it, right? If he wants to say, look, there is a you know, the Israelis are completely abusing the Palestinians, but this is not going to be how I win the next election. I'm going to stay out of this one for now. Fine. But no, he's actively getting involved and actively saying that anyone that says the truth about Palestine has to publicly apologize and humiliate themselves, or presumably they'll be kicked out of the party. Now, if Keir Starmer wants to shut up about Israel and Palestine, fine. But if you're going to speak on something, don't lie. And I think even worse than lying is banning other people from telling the truth. That's just disgusting. And it speaks so badly of Keir Starmer. It speaks so badly of the Labour Party. I also think it speaks so badly of journalism in this country. Because I haven't seen a single journalist say, this is a bit weird. Why has this MP been forced to apologize for saying something which even she admits is true? No one has said that. All they've said is just like, oh, isn't this Keir Starmer being decisive? Because research to them just means quote tweeting Margaret Hodge, right? No one's bothered to read the report by Amnesty International. No one's bothered to read the report by Human Rights Watch by Betsalem. No one's bothered to look into who sits in the Israeli government. All they say is, oh, Margaret Hodge is upset. Oh, and Keir Starmer's not like Jeremy Corbyn. He's going to take tough action. Like, how, how stupid can you be? And it does matter because this is, it just shows, I think, how racist this is as well, because you, you are literally allowed to make people apologize for telling the truth about a group of people being oppressed because we consider them less important than the group oppressing them. Let's go to our final story. Matt Hancock might have stepped back from frontline politics, but he appears to have no intention of stepping back from the nation's televisions. And if this Good Morning Britain interview is anything to go by, his career as a generic celebrity could be even more of a car crash than his career as the nation's health secretary. Guidance that was in place. No, I'm talking about the legal the restrictions. No, I... These have been confirmed to us by Adam Wagner, uh, the barrister from Doughty Street Chambers, who, right. as we know, keeps the receipts on all the legal changes at the time. Yeah. Based on what we know, he says, this seems to me to have been an illegal gathering. No, I didn't break the law. Um, and you know, there, were, there were fines issued, as we all know. Why didn't you break the law? If it, was it reasonably necessary for work purposes? No, I, the, the guidance was in place at the time with the... No, you're, the, the you're pivoting. Plus... You are pivoting no, to social distancing. I, I'm not sorry, talking, I haven't... Not talking about social distancing guidelines. I'm talking well, that about was the, the They were the guidelines that I They that might I well have been, and you definitely yeah. broke those because yeah. you were definitely yeah. not a metre so, away from so, the so the, I'm talking so about the law. England was at stage two of COVID restrictions. I'm not sure that's the case. Look, I, don't, I am absolutely sure that's right, the case. Right. I don't have the dates in front of me. And you were health secretary at the time. No, you brought the regulations in. Of course. Of course. And I don't have If anybody should have me. known the law, it of course, would have been I you. I, of course. Absolutely. It happened on the 6th of May. We were still under stage two. It was a breach of the law. No, it wasn't a breach of the law. Well, what, what, it was a breach of the guidelines. And I've been through that. If the law endlessly. says that no person may participate in a gathering which consists of two or more people and takes place indoors, the only exemption was work purposes where it was reasonably necessary. You must be arguing it was reasonably necessary. No, I'm obviously, you know, that's obviously not, I wouldn't make that argument. Um, but the guidelines were in place on social distancing. And so was the law. They were the, no, the law on this, on this point, I can't remember the exact dates, but it was lifted in April. And I uh, on remember On the 14th the of case. May, that law was changed. And no, the, we went were, into uh, stage, stage three. There were further stages after that point. There were there no were. stages between stage two and stage three. Uh, there was. That was on the... Um, that was in April the change came into... Anyway, I've, look, I've been through this endlessly, this um, point. Um, and I've explained You've it. been through it endlessly, but you don't know what the law was I know at the exactly. Time. I, I, I do, and I'm explaining You said it to you, you don't, and you didn't have the dates in front I don't of have you. The but dates. when I gave you the dates, you say it, didn't, it wasn't in existence at the time. No, that's right. The, I, the guidelines were in place, 
and I accept that I broke the guidelines, but I didn't break the law. The dude has forgotten what the law was at what time when he was health secretary. It was quite the skewering. A lot to say about it, but instead, I just want to go straight on to the next one because it is even worse. Are you telling the truth when you say that it wasn't your primary uh, absolutely motivation? Absolutely, am. Absolutely. Of course. So did you negotiate over the fee? The, of course there was a discussion and negotiation over the fee. There always is on these things, as you know. But the point is that the, the primary reason is because I have, I developed over the uh, pandemic, over lockdown and over my resignation, you know, I ended up very, a very public figure. And I felt that the, what the public knew about me was through a particular lens, you know, coming on this programme and Piers Morgan uh, mm -hmm. shouting monologues at me for 20 minutes. You call it the Piers Morgan mincer? It was, it was just, uh, you know, it was totally ridiculous. Uh, uh, and well, other... once again, it's called being held to account. No, not that, not that stuff. That but, was just being told off. Well, to this the, is being we, held to can account. Can we stick to the money? Anyway, can we stick, no, no, yes, hang on, exactly. can we just stick? I don't want to drift off the point, Sorry, because it's an important point. Okay. A lot of people will want a, a clearer answer. If you didn't do it for the money, and you did say before you went in that you were going to be making a substantial donation of your fee to charity, yeah. you got paid £330,000. You've kept £310,000 of it. You've only given, or rather, no, £320,000. You've only given £10,000 to two mm -hmm. charities, which is a tiny fraction of the fee. So if the money wasn't important to you, why do you held on to most of it? Well, I did absolutely give some of the money to charity. £10,000 yeah, out of £330,000. And, and they're two brilliant charities. No, come on, 10, 000, I'm talking about the amount, not the charities. £10,000. If you didn't do it for the money, why not give the money to the causes which need it? I, I said I didn't primarily do it for the money, but also... You know, but if you've only I, given £10,000 uh, to charity and you've kept 320 yeah. it would seem to most people you can do basic arithmetic that you did do it for the money. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily no, wrong. I, I, I just want a clear and honest answer for yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I'm giving you. I didn't primarily do it uh, for the money. I primarily did it to try to show who I really you am. primarily kept I, the money. I, 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 I gave a five-figure sum to charity. £10,000. Out of 330. Sure. And You I, keep skating I, off it and saying, well, I, a, a substantial sum. Yes, just a ten well, it is. Uh, it is, I, you know, I, and I'm really proud of the money that I raised for charity, not, you know, before, and I'll do lots in future. And, you know, I think that it's good giving money to charity. And, you know, I'm, they are, they're two absolutely fantastic. What much is it, though, out of 330? Well, I think, I think £10,000 is actually Did you decent. still get... You primarily kept the money is such a good line. Like, people take the piss out of Richard Mayley, but I think he really justified his pay packet there. You primarily kept the money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't primarily do it for the money. You primarily kept the money. God. He's like, you know what, son? I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the attention. <laughs> like, it's like that doesn't make you seem better. But also, it's just like, it's just the thing. Like, I just loved like um, Susanna Reed being like, so was grabbing a handful of ass necessarily, you know, necessary? <laughs> Breaking social distancing rules. And he's like, yes, <laughs> it was a great app. Um, but I mean, honestly, just like, it's just like, I just, what he's doing, it's it's not even just about the money and like, whatever. I don't, I actually don't really care about the fee because like, yes, MPs disgrace themselves and then they go on and they make money in the speaking circuit or whatever. It's no worse making it off I'm a celebrity over making it off the, the speaking circuit that all other MPs go into but for me it's like it's the craving for celebrity and it's like the only reason anyone knows who you are Matt Hancock is because you were health secretary during the pandemic and you were disastrous at it like the the reason people know you it's not because you saw the nation through this like really difficult time and you know you you know became a celebrity off of that it's like you made a name for yourself because you presided over thousands of care home deaths because you allowed people to be released from hospital back into homes without adequate testing or isolation. You failed to provide to you know bring in NHS. You failed to provide NHS workers with adequate PPE, leaving them you know having to resort to wearing bin bags as aprons. You delayed entering lockdowns at pretty much every turn and you handed out lucrative government contracts to your mates. So given that that's why anyone knows who you are, I think it's so disgusting that he's trying to sort of exploit that into a celebrity career. It's like if you if we lived in a civilized country, like you wouldn't even be able to show yourself on TV. 
let alone trying to do it to kind of make a celebrity out of yourself. Like for me, actually, the attention seeking and the idea that, you know, oh, I need to show people who I'm authentically am as if anyone cares. That to me is actually more insulting because it just shows that you saw this entire thing as, you know, an opportunity to make a name for yourself. And it's actually so insulting and offensive that people who lost their lives or people whose family members and friends lost their lives, for example, in those care homes, have to switch on their TV and watch you, you know, stunting for money in that way on their screens. It's, it's, it's insulting. Like, it's really embarrassing. And I think it, it's, it's in, you know, it, it's a stain on the Tory party that he was ever even, you know, that he was ever the health secretary. I don't think stains show up, like, in the Tory party anymore. It's a bit like a skid mark, but the whole pair of boxes have turned brown. <laughs> The bit I liked of that, sorry, I know what you said was very serious there. I just want to point this out. When Richard Madeley is saying that he made 320 grand and only gave away 10 grand of it, at some point in the interview, he switches to say, it was a five-figure sum. <laughs> and why I love that is because £10,000 is the lowest five-figure sum you could possibly have. So he's saying, like, you can imagine to his PR person. So he's like, I want, I, I'll, <laughs> what's the lowest amount of money I can give and say it's a five-figure sum? £10,000, I think £10,000 and £10 or something. It was a five-figure sum. <laughs> it was a very small percentage. You've primarily kept the money about Hancock. And we primarily all think you're a fucking asshole. Let's end there. <laughs> uh, an announcement to end with. You might have seen on Twitter. We have been trailing it for a little while, but we're finally going five days a week. And we've been planning this for a long time. We are very excited about it. It's going to happen from next Monday. Don't worry, I'm not going to be hosting all five days a week. You're going to get some real variety. Aaron is going to have a weekly show. Moyer is going to have a weekly show. It's going to be incredible. And the important thing for you guys to remember, as well as that you can tune in on Tuesday and a Thursday, is that we're going slightly earlier. We're going from 6 p.m. That's partly so we can get out the clips on the same evening. That's all from next week. Of course, it's only possible because of the support you guys have given us over the past years and months and weeks. If it wasn't for your generous support, We'd still be doing one show a week like we were back in, when was that? Maybe 20, 2018, I suppose. So thank you so much. If you're not already a supporter and you do want to get involved, you can go to support.navaramedia.com or navaramedia.com forward slash support. I'm pretty sure both URLs take you to the same place. I always forget which one I'm supposed to say. But for now, come back on Friday at 7 p.m., then on Monday at 6 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.